Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. We have come to the second verse of the 12th chapter in our study of Romans. What I want to do is I just want to read verse 1, make a comment or two about it from what we've looked at the last couple of weeks, and then we'll jump in to verse 2. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Romans 12. If you don't have a Bible, behind every section of chairs there is a table with some Bibles on them. You can go get one of those. The reference and the page numbers will be given up on the screen. If you do not have a Bible, I'm, I'm asking you to take that Bible that you're using uh, home with you and make it your own. Spend time in it. Wear it out. Wear it out. You know, the Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person who is not. Amen? Okay, Romans chapter 12. Paul wrote in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We spent two weeks on that verse. Let me just sum it up with a statement that what Paul is calling for here, the big truth here, is that all of our lives is to be lived as an act of worship to God. Based upon what God has done, everything that Paul communicated in the first 11 chapters, that the only reasonable response that we should have to the mercies of God is that we should live our lives as an act of worship. What that means is that one of the ways that we could say that is that in everything that we do, regardless of whether it's relational connections in the home, outside of the home, the way that we perform our duties at work, the way that we recreate, whatever it is that we do, that we should show by our lifestyle and by our lips that we value Jesus Christ as absolutely supreme. That's what it means to live a life of worship. That's what he calls us to in verse 1. And then, here's what he does in verse 2. First half of verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here in verse 2, what Paul does is that he tells us what we must do in order for verse 1 to be a reality. The way that we are going to be able and empowered and equipped to live a life that is a life of worship to God, that here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to have our minds continually renewed. And so last week we talked about the first half of verse 2 and what it means to renew our minds. And what that is, is that the Word of God used by the Spirit of God 
continually putting that into our life and feasting on it, what happens is the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to change us more like the Son of God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, a verse that we looked at last week. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Here's what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth related to what I just said. He wrote, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So here's what that verse right there tells us. Paul, same author that wrote Romans, is the author that wrote the letter to the Corinthians, and he says the way that it works is that in the Word of God, the Spirit of God enables us to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And as we have that revelation through the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, of the excellencies, the glories, the greatness, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, what happens is that the Spirit of God uses that to change us into the same glory, meaning to make us more like Jesus in ever-increasing measure. That's how the renewing of the mind takes place. Then we come to the second half of verse 2, which is our topic for today. So verse 1, the only proper response to what God has done in Jesus is to live a life of worship. Verse 2, the way that we do that is through a renewed mind. And the second half of verse 2 reads like this. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. What I want to do rest of this morning as I unpack and preach through that sentence is I want to first of all make sure that we understand what is being referred to here when Paul speaks of or writes of the will of God that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And the reason that I want to do that is because we need to understand so that Scripture makes sense to us that there are at least two ways that the Word of God talks about the will of God. You see, if we don't understand both of the ways in which the Word of God talks about the will of God, then we'll come to some verses if we only believe in the one way that the Word of God talks about the will of God, and we come to a verse that talks about the will of God in another way, we're going to be confused. We're going to draw some wrong conclusions. We're going to make some mis interpretations of the Word of God. And so we need to see, I believe, to accurately divide the truth of God's Word, we need to see the two ways in which the Bible talks about the Word of God. So I'm going to state them one at a time, and then I'm going to give you the biblical 
background, just a fraction. I'm in no way going to cover even a small portion of what could be said. But I'm going to give you just a sampling. So the first way or one way that the Bible talks about the will of God is God's sovereign will. Meaning that everything that happens, happens out of the decrees or the will or the purposes of God. That all that happens in the universe that God created happens because of the sovereign will of God. Now, before you start raising objections to that, let's just walk through it. We're not going to spend but just five or ten minutes at the most, maybe five, six minutes on this, but you need to see it so that Scripture can make sense to you and not be confusing. God's sovereign will, everything that happens is a result of the control of God. That includes monumental things and minute things. That includes righteous things and evil things. Now just hold on to that thought for a moment and let's just honestly go to the Word of God and let the Word of God say what it says. First of all, biblical evidence for the sovereign will of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. Please turn there. Encourage you to follow along. I want you to see that what we are looking at, God communicated in His Word. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.11, In Him, in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him. Now listen. According to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Question, how many things did Paul say in Ephesians 1.11 does God work according to the counsel of His will? Say it again, church. Amen. All things. Let me just show you a few of the minute things to give you a sampling. Matthew 10.29. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is making a point here about the will of God. And listen to what he says in Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? That just means two sparrows could be purchased so cheaply then they were used in temple sacrifices, but just for a, a penny, two sparrows could be purchased. But yet he makes this point over something seemingly so insignificant. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. Jesus here says that God is so intimately, intricately involved in every detail of creation that not even one sparrow falls to the ground outside of the will of God. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 33 Proverbs chapter 6, verse 33. Let's look there for a moment. The lot is cast into the lap, 
but its every decision is from the Lord. The casting of lots was one of the means by which they made decisions. It's not exactly like this, but you might think about flipping the coin, right? Making a decision, heads or tails. The casting of the lot into the lap, the writer of Proverbs says, it's every decision is from the Lord. How often did the writer say that when the lot is cast, that God sovereignly determines the result? How often? Every decision, every time, it's his sovereign control. Proverbs 16.1. Proverbs 16.1. This might be considered minute to you or monumental. It depends upon the circumstance. But here's what the writer of Proverbs 16.1 writes. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Wow. I mean, that's hard to swallow, but it says something really direct right there. It says that the answer that comes off of the tongue of man is from the Lord. He is sovereign. He is in absolute control. Now let me give you a few monumental things. We've looked at some minute things. Let me give you what would be considered more monumental things that are under the sovereign control of God. Proverbs 21.1. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That verse is telling us that God is sovereign over the issues of a nation. That he has the hand of the king in his heart of the king in his hand, and he just does with it whatever he wants. He moves it and directs it and turns it wherever he decides to turn it. Now, I didn't write that. The Word of God says that. Now, we can look at the Old Testament, kind of hindsight here, look at that long history, and we see bad stuff happen, and we say, Wow, we watch how that was worked out. We say, wow, God truly was absolutely sovereign. But let's bring it right here, right home today. Do we believe that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and that he turns it wherever he wants? Do we believe that our president's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns that wherever he sovereignly chooses to turn it? Either the word of God says what it says and we believe it or we don't. I believe it. I don't think the God of the Old Testament is any different than the God of today or the God that will be for any other future day. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. And the truth is that the president's heart and the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns that stream wherever he decides to turn it. He's sovereign. He's in absolute control over all events. Now, to draw that truth out even bolder, even more radical relief, it doesn't say this, that 
The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And if he chooses to, he can turn it wherever he wills. It doesn't say that, does it? It says that he actually does it. He doesn't just decide when it's his prerogative occasionally to engage and get involved. It says that this is the way it is. Here's the heart of the king as a stream of water in his hand, and he just turns that stream. He actively is engaged in making sure that the king does what he wants the king to do. That's what the Word of God says. You cannot interpret that any other way. You can either say, I believe it, or I'm deciding to reject that part of the Word of God. It says it undeniably. So the Bible is direct and explicit that God sovereignly controls what happens. As Daniel wrote in chapter 4, verse 35, Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. Turn there. It's an incredible statement here about the sovereignty of God. Daniel 4, 35. Daniel wrote, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Here's the point. God wills what comes to pass, and everything that he wills comes to pass every time perfectly, exactly as he chooses for it to come to pass. Why? Because he's sovereign. He's sovereign over his creation. Now, it begs the question. Well, if the sovereign will of God, if the Word of God teaches the sovereign will of God in that all that comes to pass is ultimately from God, then what does that do with sin in the world? Because it's all things, Scripture says, that are in His control, even sin. So, there is a way... There are many scriptures that I could give you with this, but I'm going to give you the preeminent scripture to prove this once and for all. It is, in my mind, the unquestionable proof that all things, all things, including all righteousness and all evil, are under the sovereign outworking of the will of God. And I can prove it, I believe, by asking and answering this question. What is the most wicked thing that has ever been done on planet Earth or will ever be done on planet Earth? What is the moment when sin stooped the absolute lowest and performed the most outrageous atrocity against God and His glory and His holiness? It was in the crucifixion of the perfect Holy Son of God. There is no question that that was the most vilest, blackest, evilest act of human history. So the question, was that just man's will or was that God's will? 
Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Please, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28. Here is what the writer says about the crucifixion of the holy, perfect, sinless, spotless, eternal second member of the Trinity and his death on the cross. Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Stop right there. We'll read verse 28 in a second. What verse 27 says is that in Jerusalem, there was against Jesus several people and groups of people that conspired to bring about his crucifixion. It was Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews, the crowds of people saying, crucify him, crucify him. That's true. And then verse 28. And why did they do that? Here's the answer. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That is pretty clear. That it was the predestined plan ordination of God that the Son of God would be crucified on a cross and those who carried out that wicked act were doing so because it was the unfolding sovereign will and decree of the eternal God. That's what it says in Acts chapter 4. The one that ultimately killed the perfect son was the Holy Father. That's what it says. Isaiah 53. It was the Father's will to crush the son and to cause him to suffer. Try to get your mind around that statement. It was the Father's will to crush the son and to cause him to suffer. You see... The Bible, in one sense, talks about the will of God as God's sovereign decrees, God's sovereign outworking of all of the events on planet Earth and in the universe. He rules over all of them, and yet somehow, He does that without sinning. He's holy and righteous and all that he does is sin and somehow he even works in the midst of the wickedness of men because Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews that cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus, they are complicit in their guilt. They are guilty and justly guilty and it was the outworking of the sovereign plan of God but somehow God ruled over that sovereignly without sinning in the midst of it. That's the teaching of Scripture. And you say, well, wait a minute, I can't get my mind around that. Well, are not we okay with God being bigger than our minds? 
If the Bible says it's true, then it should be okay that God is bigger than our minds, that we believe he's sovereign and works all things out. And at the same time, we believe he did it holy, righteous, without sinning. We can't square that and find out where those two things meet, but the Bible says that they do. And so we should, in faith, stand there and say, God, you're sovereign in all things on this planet and in this universe. That's one way that the Word of God talks about the will of God. Let's look at the second way, because it's a very different way. It's a very different way. There's also God's will of command or his moral will. This is the revealed will of God. The sovereign will of God is almost always hidden and unknown to humanity unless God works it out and shows it. But most of the time it's hidden. But God's moral will, his will of command is what he's revealed. It's what's in here. It's here's how you should live. Here's what you should do. God's moral will or his will of command. Now, here's a significant difference between the two. Unlike God's sovereign will that is always accomplished, is God's moral will always accomplished? Let me just read some verses and ask you to give me the answer to that. Here's God's will of command, His moral will. Talking to believers. How many followers of Jesus Christ are in here? Would you please raise your hand? Okay, listen. This is a question for you. You, therefore, written to you, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How many of us have got that down? I'm not raising my hand. I'm just asking you (laughs) to raise your hand if you figured that one out. So here's the truth. That will of God that's revealed is not true of you. In that way, The will of God is not being accomplished. If we're talking about the moral will of God, it is not always accomplished. How about this? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that doesn't just mean the outward physical acts. What about the thoughts of the mind and the lust of the mind? If you've lusted after a woman, Jesus said you've committed adultery with her in your heart. I don't want anybody to raise your hand and answer this question, but have you always obeyed that? Let me ask you another question. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you give thanks in every circumstance? Have you always in every circumstance given thanks to God? The answer is no. The will of God is not always fulfilled. How about these? Quickly, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Guys, how many of you have done that perfectly? If you haven't, that means the will of God has not always been fulfilled in your life. His will of command. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Pray for your leaders. Believe the best in others. Pray, put others above yourself. Pray without ceasing. Anybody got that one down? Pray without ceasing. Jesus walked a certain way, and Scripture says, walk as Jesus walked. 
Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The point is this. The undeniable truth of the Word of God is that the will of God, His will of command, His revealed will is not always accomplished. So what we have in Scripture, we have two ways at least in which the will of God is referred to. One is His sovereign will that is always accomplished. His will of decree, the way that He overrules all things in every aspect of his creation, minute and monumental. And then secondly, we have the will of command, his moral will that is broken all the time. I break it. You break it. We want to strive to obey it, but it's broken. So now we come to Romans 12, chapter 12, verse 2, part B and ask the question, what will of God is Paul referring to in Romans 12 too? You see, you need to understand which of these two wills because if you misunderstand that there are two, you could assume he's talking about God's will of decree, his sovereign will, and look at Romans 12 too and say, well, it doesn't make any sense at all. The Bible's confusing. Well, it's not if you understand that there's two wills of God, the two ways in which the Bible talks about it, and understand that the way he's talking about in Romans 12, 2 is God's will of command, his revealed will. This is about God's revealed will, the will of God that is not always accomplished. And so now let me give you three truths about God's will, God's Will of command, His moral will for you. Here's the first one. And it's a great truth that I hope encourages you because I think at times believers, some believers doubt this. The truth is this. God has a will for you and He wants you to know it. God has a will for you and He wants you to know that will. Isn't that the point Paul is making here? He is saying, Romans 12, 1, present your life as a living sacrifice and live out every day and all that you do is an act of worship. Romans 12, 2, part A, and the way you do that is by continually having your minds renewed by the Spirit of God with the Word of God. And then here comes the truth then you'll be able to test and discern what the will of God is. In other words, he's got one for you. And he wants you to come to the realization of what that will is. He doesn't want to leave you in the dark about it. He wants you to know what his will for you is. Because he wants you to do it. And the more that you know it, the more you can do it. So God has a will for you and he wants you to know it. You say, okay, Pastor Brad, I'm ready. Man, just lay it on me. I want to hear what the will of God is for me. I've been asking this question my whole life. I'm so ready for somebody to give me the formula so I can always determine what the will of God is. Do you know that that's probably, in my 25 years of ministry, if I would say, what is the one question that's been asked me more times than any other question, it's that question. Pastor, how do I know what the will of God is? How do I determine what the will of God is? Or what is the will of God for me in this circumstance? Can you please help me with that? That's not a bad question. It's a good question. It's coming from a heart that really wants to do the will of God. But here's the problem. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, part B, is not primarily talking about understanding 
that aspect of the will of God. Let me explain why. You have to look at the context of the passage. Remember one of the great principles of biblical interpretation. I state these once in a while as they surface. The way one of the cardinal rules for properly interpreting the word is that context interprets the text. God's word interprets God's word. And so what is the context? Well, let's just ask that of verse 1. What's the context? He's talking about a life lived in worship to God, a life fully surrendered to God, a life of worship. And the next context in the first part of verse 2 is that then you live that way by the constant renewal of your minds where you take the Word of God under the leading of the Spirit of God and you humble yourself before the Spirit and the Word and you ask the Spirit of God to help you understand the Word and to live it out in your day-to-day life, helping your mind to continually come into better and greater understandings of what the will of God is for you. And the truth is that when those two things happen, that's the context of discerning and testing the will of God. You see, the context is not about you coming to God and saying, let me just give you a couple of the most common questions that are asked concerning the will of God when individuals want to know what the will of God is for their lives. I have two sons, actually, that are in the midst of this track right now. Who am I supposed to marry? What's God's will for who am I supposed to marry? How about this? What's God's will for my vocation? Where does God want me to live? Those are questions that are related to decisions that need to be made. What's God's will for this decision? And the reality is the Word of God is not written that way. It doesn't write down every decision that you're going to face and outline the answer to that. Why? Because God wants you to know Him. He doesn't want you to just come to Him as a vending machine and say, pop out another answer for me. He wants you to prize Him above all else. He wants Romans 12.1 to be your reality where Jesus Christ is the greatest value and the supreme treasure of your life so that you say, I want God to live every moment of every day as an act of worship to you. And so I'm going to renew my mind in the truth of the Word of God under the leading of the Spirit of God, humbly in prayer in the Word so that I can come to understand how to live out the wisdom of the Word of God. That's the kind of will Paul is writing about and God's will for you. It's about His will for you to become like Jesus Christ. That's the will of God for you. That your character becomes like Jesus. That you put on the mind of Christ. That you walk like Him. That you talk like Him. That your faith grows more and more like Him. That's the will of God God wants to answer for you. How you live that way in your day-to-day decisions. Not just, do I buy the red car or the green car? Buy a car and 
Use your money properly. But whatever you do, do it as an act of worship unto God. That's the context of the will of God that Paul is talking about in Romans 12, 1 and 2. So that he says, when you offer your body as a living sacrifice and live out a life of worship daily through the renewing of your mind under the power of the Spirit of God and the truth of the Word of God, humbly in prayer, continually doing that, that what will happen is that you will come to understand how to live a life that is in the center of God's will, meaning more and more like Jesus learning to treasure Jesus above all else more and more. So, truth number one about the will of God, God has a will for you and He wants you to know it. And that leads us into truth number two. Here's truth number two about the will of God. God's will for you is good and it's pleasing or acceptable, and it's perfect. And somebody needs to say, amen. God's will for you is good, and it's pleasing, and it's perfect. That's what Paul says. He wants you to come to know that the will of God is good and pleasing and perfect. God's will of God, the will of God is good. You know what that means? Even when it doesn't look like from external circumstances that it's good, it's good. Every time it's good. He's a good God. Even from your small vantage point and you go through, and I know some of your stories, I don't know all of them or even most of them, but I know some of your stories are filled with some tragedy that can bring tears to my eyes in a moment if I dwell on it. But God's will is good because he's bigger than that tragedy. And if that was the unfolding of his sovereign will, then the truth of Romans 8.28 is true. And that is God works all things for the good of those who love him. Listen, Isn't that the kind of God you need in the deepest, darkest valleys of life? A God that is absolutely sovereign. And even if you don't understand why he does something, here's what you know. He's a good God. He's bigger than this. And ultimately, in his sovereignty, he's going to take what was the hardest moment of my life and he is going to turn it out. How? I have no idea. But he's going to turn it out for my good, because he's a good, sovereign God. You need a God like that. You don't need a God that just wants the best for you, and if you do all the right things, it happens. No, that's hopeless. You're not good. You're going to do the wrong things, and everybody around you is. What you need is a sovereign God. You need a God that all things that unfold are a part of his sovereign will. Then you can face the valley of the shadow of death and say, I don't like it. 
I am hurting worse than I've ever hurt. But I know that in there, in that darkness, there's a good God. And he's bigger and he's sovereign and he's overruling this. And one day on the other side, somehow out of his sovereignty, I'm going to see the good that God accomplished through what was so unspeakable. That's the kind of God that is a sovereign God. And so that's the God that we need. And we also need a God of a moral will. Here's why. Because that God is compassionate. That God hurts when you hurt. That God suffered in every way like you suffered. That God was tempted in every way like you were tempted. So we have this sovereign God proven by the sovereign will of God in Scripture. And we have this close God that came down into our reality, shown by His moral will that lived a life of sorrow and was acquainted with grief and ultimately went willingly to the greatest event of human suffering in history. He knows your pain. That's the kind of God we've got. We have a God of all power, sovereign power, and a God that understands and relates. You need both of those truths of God to make it through the tough times of life. Not just one. God's will is good. Here's the second thing. It's pleasing God's will is pleasing or acceptable. Some translations most use pleasing. It's acceptable. Acceptable to who? Acceptable to who? Well, it's not talking about God. Of course the will of God is acceptable to God. It's God's will. He means to you. To you, it's acceptable. It's pleasing It's not that we just say as we grit our teeth, I know this is going to be good for me, and so I'm going to say this is the pleasing will of God. No, that's not what Paul is saying here. It's not like when you're a kid, it was my pet peeve, eating the green beans, the, I mean the green peas. I hated green peas. I don't care how good they were for me. I did not like them. And so I might choke them down or put them in my mouth and go into the bathroom and shut the door and spit them out where my parents couldn't see me. I knew they were good, but I hated them. That's not what he's talking about here. He is saying that it's going to be acceptable. It's going to be pleasing to you. Let me come to the last one and then I'll tie all three of these together. It's not only good and pleasing, the will of God is perfect. Here's what that word means in the Greek. Teleos in the Greek. Teleos, perfect. It refers to something that is fully complete. It is something that has realized its full destiny. It's a life 
that is everything that that life can be. That's the word perfect. So the promise, look at the promise here. It's astounding. When we, because of the mercies of God, verse 1, present our body as a living sacrifice to the Lord so that everything that we do, all of the actions of the members of our body, we're living as a life of worship to God day in and day out, and we take the Word of God under the leading of the Spirit of God, humbly in prayer we dive into it and ask Him to renew our minds, help us to begin to see and to think and understand the truth of the will of God, then the promise is this, that what will happen is that we'll come to understand that God's will is good Not just we know it in our head, we're going to understand that it's good and we're going to feel that it's pleasurable and we're going to realize that it's perfect, that that's really what life is all about. In fact, it's then and only then that we come to understand that that's what the fullness of life that Jesus talked about in John 10.10 is all about. It's that kind of a life that really lives life to the full. The fullness of joy, that's the will of God for us. And when we are walking in the will of God like that, we are going to understand the promise of Paul that God's will is good, but not just good. It's pleasing. We actually like it. We want it. And it's perfect. It's the best, absolute best use of life. Good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the first truth is God has a will for you and He wants you to know it. The second truth is God's will for you is good, pleasing, and perfect. And the third truth is this, that the goodness and the pleasure and the perfection of the will of God is discerned by experience. I just want that to sink in for a minute. Isn't that what Paul is saying? It's not something that you can get up here only and grasp it. It's something that you have to taste and see that it's good. You have to walk in it to come to the realization like Paul is talking about here that God's will is good every time and pleasing all the time and ultimately the perfection of life completely the one way to live that is ultimately the fullness of life. And how do I know that? Because it says right in the verse that by testing you may discern. You have to test it in order to discern that God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. You have to walk in it. You have to get into the will of God and be doing it before you come to the realization. You know, you can look at the chocolate sundae and describe it in every word, descriptive word that you can use to try to help somebody understand how good it is. But what's going to really show them? They got to pick the spoon up and take a big scoop of the ice cream dripping with the chocolate syrup and the whipped cream and put it in their mouth. And they go, oh, my goodness, that's so much better than what you were saying. 
right? You got to experience it. It's by testing that you discern what the will of God is. So the way it works is you give your life to God based upon his mercy. You sell yourself out to God as a living sacrifice using the members of your body as daily acts of worship. And you constantly renew your mind with the truth of God's Word through the power of the Spirit of God. And what happens is you begin to understand what the will of God is. He shows you by the Word of God what God's moral will of command is for you. And you walk in it. And the more you walk in it, even though from the outside, before you're saved, or when you were immature as a believer, you're like, wow, that looks like a killjoy, man. If I become a radical Christian, this is going to be brutal. No. You begin to walk in it. You say, wow, that tasted pretty good. And you walk in a little more. And you say, wow, that was really pleasing. And then you come into the reality of it's really ultimately the perfection of life. Why wouldn't it be? He's the God that gave you the life. Why wouldn't he know how it works? You see, that's the way this works in Romans 12, 1 and 2. These are great overarching statements about what it means to live in the will of God and what he's going to do from verse 3 of chapter 12 down to the middle or end of chapter 15 is he's going to take you piece by piece on what that looks like in real life. He's going to take the principle that we've talked about in these four Sundays in verses 1 and 2, and he's going to show you what that looks like in relationship with other people, what that looks like in uh, other believers, what that looks like in relationship with the world, what that looks like in relationship to the government, what that looks like in relationship to yourself. He's just going to piece by piece show you how to flesh that reality out and all the different encounters and relationships that you have in life. so that we can live out all that we do as acts of worship, coming to realize what life is really all about. Would you please stand? Father God, I just reminded again as I was first service, You just spoke to me deeply in the preparation of this message. And when I say deeply, I mean with deep conviction that my life is not being lived as it should be as a daily act, moment by moment act of worship. And I just want to agree with what your spirit has been saying to my heart about that. That's what confession is, agreeing with what the spirit says. But I don't come defeated. I come believing that your spirit wants to continue that work in me and in everyone, every follower of Christ here. And so I want to pray. I want to pray for myself. I want to pray for the believers here. I'm asking that you would help us to more and more as our minds are renewed to help us to give ourselves to that discipline 
And as our minds are renewed to show us the surpassing greatness, the supremacy, the beauty, the excellencies of Jesus Christ so that we become so captivated by that reality that whatever the world offers and whatever it entices us with, either bad or neutral but distracting, that you would help us to desire Jesus over all of those things and do what we need to do to walk in closer, intimate fellowship with the Lord of life so that we can come to realize in day-to-day practice what the good and the pleasing and the perfect will of God is, having lives that are filled with the fullness of joy. For your glory, in the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.